are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited. Tonight, we have Dr. Amy De La Garza joining us for an amazing talk on complementary and alternative therapies for substance use disorder. And Dr. Paula Cook is going to introduce her for us. Woohoo! I'm so excited to have Amy here. Amy and Darlene and I did residency together. So this is the common connection. Amy is a family medicine trained doc. She just finished her addiction medicine fellowship at the U. By the way, Amy, congratulations. Like we need to celebrate that. I know. I'm so excited. Finally, two and a half years later, I'm done. Yeah, (laughs) right. Two and a half years, but you also managed a practice and everything else in the middle of it. Amy is also an Institute for Functional Medicine Certified Practitioner. Her interest is the application of complementary and lifestyle interventions for the treatment of chronic disease, especially behavioral health diagnoses, including substance use disorder. So a significant portion of Amy's fellowship was dedicated to the development, delivery, and outcome analysis of an intensive lifestyle education curriculum in a publicly funded residential treatment program here in Salt Lake. And along with me, she implemented an auricular acupuncture quality improvement project within the same organization. And Amy was really the driving force behind this. I got it started and she took over the program in a robust way. And she ended up delivering 80 to 100 ear acupuncture treatments over a seven month period. In Amy's private practice, in addition to evidence-based medical interventions, she applies complementary and lifestyle medicine to patients with chronic medical and behavioral health diagnoses, focusing on nutrition, movement, stress management, connectivity, nutraceuticals, and acupuncture. Her vision is to help patients, families, and communities both prevent and heal from the diseases caused by less than ideal lifestyle choices, chronic stress, and the devastating effects of risky substance use, isolation. In Amy's new role at Novamind and CETA Psychiatry, she'll be using a team-based approach in a group medical visit model, shout out to group medical visits to treat these most challenging diagnoses. I was so excited to have Amy here. I just want to add that a couple years ago, Amy and I presented, well, Amy presented on this topic on a Project Echo that I was the lead mentor for. And I was just so blown away by the by the talk, I, I like put it in my pocket and I'm like, someday you will be on a podcast with me. And look at this amazing things happen because here we are. It is was our birthday, by the way. We just celebrated one year of the podcast. And so we're so happy to have you with us to talk about this. I think it's so interesting because we don't really hear a lot about this avenue of treatment and options for people with substance use disorder. And it is so badly needed. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, I think the work we've done together, Paula, has really highlighted with intensity, just the lack of education and the lack of knowledge in our patient populations, especially, you know, when we think about intergenerational trauma and poverty and substance use disorder, chronic disease in general. I mean, chronic diseases are intergenerational, right? And I don't think we can necessarily getting away with a sort of the nature or genetic model of chronic disease. I think we really have to start thinking about how intergenerational food choices and lack of 
movement and how families manage stress, especially during these very stressful times that we're living in. I think it's just imperative that we really get to the root cause of of what drives these behavioral health diagnoses. And in my opinion, it it really is how people are living their lives. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, you talk about family and intergenerational trauma and habits. And I mean, I, I think I learned this through your lens when you were doing your program in the residential treatment program that people just don't even have a contextual experience from which to draw on. I mean, they don't, a lot of our folks listening, and you know this, and especially those of us who treat addiction extensively or mental health illness, our patients often don't have any sense of family, or if they do, it may have been very dysfunctional. And Mm -hmm. so to draw upon what we assume was normal meal times, family time, movement, healthy habits is just non-existent. And their fund of knowledge, like you said, is extreme. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, You were not quite there yet at recovery days this weekend. So we just had recovery days here in Utah put on by Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness Day to celebrate recovery in our community. And as the Utah Society of Addiction Medicine, we had a booth there and Paula and I were there along with some others. And before you got there, Paula, I met a man named Frank Young, who is the founder, executive director of Warrior strength um, here in here in Salt Lake City in Utah, who um, he has a program focusing on fitness and recovery. And he was so interesting because I, I was talking to him about maybe starting some group visits at his program. And we were talking about intergenerational food choices and intergenerational trauma and substance use. And he grew up in a home where his parents were using substances methamphetamine, if memory serves correctly. And he said that he learned to eat within the patterns of his parents. So when his parents were in active use, they weren't really eating much of anything at all. Um, And then when the parents would go through periods of not using, the only things that the parents wanted, which we've talked about a lot, are sugar, refined grains, saturated fats. So his diet consisted of soda and donuts and, you know, things from boxes. And that was just just such a sort of like a, well, you heard me at CSAM, sort of like a billboard moment for me. I was like, this, this is the crux of the matter. This, this is the devastating effect of intergenerational substance use and trauma and lack of knowledge about nutrition. That was just a really poignant moment for me talking to him. That's so fascinating. And what's interesting is we we're really focused and rightly so on people's substance use as the elephant in the room. And we want that, right? We want hospitals, emergency rooms, primary care providers to address the driver of uh, infectious diseases and psychiatric illness. But behind all of that are chronic behavior, chronic diseases of lifestyle that will likely be the cause of death for a lot of us. So that's yes. what we're interested in. So why don't you talk to us about that and what your interest is and what we can do for our patients, the kinds of interventions we can provide for them and guidance. Yeah, I think that's an interesting and very important point that you make, Paula, is that, you know, as addiction medicine doctors, as like you said, 
surgeons taking care of people with abscesses and and endocarditis and orthopedics dealing with abscesses in the bones and you know all of those acute issues that come up it really highlights this basic problem that we have with our healthcare system right we're so focused on disease management and acute care that we completely miss the mark when it comes to preventing chronic disease or treating it in its very early stages and in my opinion, you know, we talk about substance use disorder as a chronic remitting relapsing disease. Well, it is. It's just a chronic disease of the brain. And so all of the lifestyle interventions that we're really starting to hear about in the treatment of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes and hypertension, even some with depression and anxiety, if we're going to call this a chronic disease of the brain, well, then we might as well start focusing on some prevention And that really comes down to how do we talk to people about their lifestyle? In addition to that, how do we apply some complementary approaches to both the prevention and the treatment of substance use? And that's really where my interest has, has focused. It just it's essential that we start applying some of these same principles to the treatment of our patients with all behavioral health diagnoses. Because those of us who are treating substance use, I mean, we're not just treating substance use, right? We're treating depression and anxiety and hypertension and type 2 diabetes. And, you know, and it's it's not enough to just talk to these patients every time they come in about how they're doing on their buprenorphine or their Vivitrol. Or, those are important. That That's the evidence-based piece that I, I'm so careful to careful to highlight. I, I'm not saying that complementary and lifestyle interventions should be the treatment for substance use. I am, as you know, I'm very focused on evidence-based medications to assist people in treatment and behavioral health treatments that, that we're all aware of that help people with substance use. But we've got to start addressing the real elephant in the room. And that is, even if you stop using substances, unless you really wrap your brain around these lifestyle choices, you're going to die at an early age from a heart attack or stroke or complications of type 2 diabetes or colon, breast, throat, you know, oral pharyngeal cancers if you continue smoking and things like that. So absolutely. So give us a primer. So tell us how do you approach, you said prevention and treatment. So those are the two things that you feel passionately about that we can do better at in terms of addressing the lifestyle modifications, education and interventions for our patients with substance use disorder. So what about prevention? Like what could we do in terms of prevention of these lifestyle related chronic diseases, including substance use itself, right? Because we know that lifestyle actually affects substance use in terms of mood, craving, immunity and those. So what about prevention? Do you want to talk about prevention? Yes, I'd love to. I see a lot of adolescents. So I start seeing patients usually around 15 or 16. I usually end up seeing the kids of the older patients that I already have. Um, Once they've sort of phased out of their pediatrician, the moms will usually end up bringing them to me, especially if they're girls and especially if they have some depression and anxiety. And so the first thing I'm very focused on as far as prevention is concerned is just asking the questions, you know, are you using substances? Are you using a jewel? Are you using marijuana? Are you drinking at parties? And sometimes that's just a really great way to get these kids to open up and talk about what they're doing. So I think the first step in prevention is just be willing to have the conversation and maybe not do a formal screening, but at least 
get the conversation going with these kids. And then unfortunately, as you may know, there's a lot of evidence coming out right now about the intensity with which adolescents and young as young adults consume processed and packaged foods. There was an article in JAMA, I think in August, talking about the increase in processed foods we're seeing consumed by adolescents and young adults. And I can't remember the exact details, but it's pretty significant. And so if you look at that, along with the very concerning and shocking data about overweight and obesity and early type 2 diabetes and even hypertension in our adolescents and young adults, I use this as a time to really talk to these young adults and kids. What are you eating? What does your diet look like? How much movement do you actually get? How many hours of sleep are you getting? And what are you doing before you get into bed? And wow, if you ask the question, it's it's really shocking the answers that you'll get. These kids are getting food delivered a lot of nights of the week, especially if their parents are working, you know, DoorDash. So how healthy are the foods we're getting from DoorDash? Um, or they're going to fast food, going to fast food during the daytime, during lunch. They're getting Mountain Dews and Pepsis and Cokes out of the vending machines at their schools, which is horrifying. They're getting energy drinks at the gas station. So no wonder they're gaining weight. They have low energy. They have low self-esteem. They're tired all the time. And then they're using so much caffeine throughout the day that they're feeling anxious and stressed and having trouble sleeping. And so that's really sort of my intervention point with the young kids. And then of course, talking to them about what we know about the adolescent and young adult brain and how sensitive it is to the use of substances and trying not to take a like don't do drugs approach, but really like a harm reduction approach. Like these are the things you should probably know about that happen in your brain when you use substances, including jewels <laughs> and other vaping, um, nicotine vaping product at a very young age and how that increases the risk for substance use disorder later, which we know from multiple studies. So that's really how I talk about prevention. And then I do that with my adult patients as well, because I think when we talk about prevention, we're not just talking about initiation of use, but we're really talking about preventing people from moving along the spectrum of use and reducing the risk that they develop a substance use disorder. And so I talk to all of my patients, oh my gosh, specifically in my patient population about alcohol use and the amount of women, because I I see primarily women in, prim in my primary care practice. The amount of women that I'm starting on naltrexone is oh, shocking because they all have been drinking more during COVID and they want to stop and they can't. And they, I'm not diagnosing them with an alcohol use disorder because they're all going to work. They're taking care of their kids. They're not in trouble legally. They're not spending all of their time thinking about and using alcohol, but boy, they cannot stop. And using naltrexone as sort of a harm reduction method for me has become an integral part of my, my practice. So that's kind of what I do thinking about prevention. Darlene, I don't know if that answers your question Darlene's or not. Head. Yeah, we're no, all talking I, at once because we're so excited. <laughs> no, I think it's, like, but I yes. think it's fascinating, Amy. We have really seen an uptick. I've seen the same thing in my practice, but with this risky drinking, patients are now where, that have gone from just occasional to daily and they're above these at, at these levels and they may not be yet experiencing the negative consequences, but certainly it's not healthy 
right? It's just what you're talking about. These are not going to be healthy levels. And we have to have these conversations and trying to do some of these interventions to maybe try to reduce that. So I think that's great. Yeah, there's some amazingly distressing data about the increase in alcohol consumption in 2020. I mean, I was just reading an article that in Britain, actually, I think it was Scotland specifically, alcohol consumption is up 39%. That's that's a lot of more alcohol consumed. And there is some interesting data on, especially like you said, Amy, increased alcohol intake by women in COVID and by physicians. Uh, female physicians. I think it was one in four, and I don't want to botch this up, but I can find the citation. One in four female physicians are overusing alcohol. One in in four. COVID pandemic. That's a lot of women. But if you stop and think about our, like your friends, our colleagues, it's actually sounds about right. Sounds yeah. about right you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, when I was up at uni doing detox, Dr. Pham, and then in the hospital doing addiction consults during my last two months of fellowship, I actually self-referred four different women to my practice who were being admitted, not for the first time, a couple of them for the first time, but a couple of them had been admitted multiple times to uni. Women my age, mid forties, experiencing symptoms of perimenopause who had either really seen an uptick in their alcohol use during COVID or had been abstinent and had returned to use during COVID. And, you know, I think women, this sort of leads to a much bigger conversation about hormones and how those play into substance use disorder, especially in women. That could be a whole nother talk. Maybe we could do that another time. But, um, you know, I think women in their mid 40s, mid to late 40s are perfectly poised to develop significant problems with any substance. But I think alcohol is really highlighted right now because of the data you were talking about, Paula. But women become more anxious. They start not being able to sleep. They start feeling more depressed. They start gaining weight. Their bodies are changing. They have adolescent kids in the house, which are a total pain in the neck and a huge source of stress. And they might have some parents who are starting to become ill or disabled that they have to start taking care of. And all of that just, I feel, turns into this perfect storm of using more and more alcohol. And if we can screen for that and talk about that with women and get women to focus on their diet and their movement and their sleep and really being cognizant about how much alcohol they're using, I think that's just, I think that's such an important piece of what we do as primary care doctors and addiction medicine doctors and something that all primary care docs should really be thinking about when they're seeing women during this very critical transition time in their life. Yeah. Wow. You were just talking about, oh my gosh, I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about myself. (laughs) Adolescence at home, except I don't like alcohol, luckily, but I like other things that are in the form of sugar. So Amy, so let's talk about diet. So let's talk about nutrition or the like three basic pillars of lifestyle medicine for people who are not as familiar with like true lifestyle medicine approach to treating people. Like what about nutrition? What are some key takeaways that our listeners can glean from your knowledge regarding 
nutrition and people with substance use disorder specifically or nutrition and our patients who have a more complex, vulnerable brain, like those with psychiatric illness in recovery, what would you want them to know? So two things I would want people to know, the food choices that we make every day really influence two critical organs in the body, the brain and the gut. And I talk to my patients a lot about the gut microbiome, so the bugs that live in the gut and how the gut responds to different foods, specifically as it relates to neurotransmitter production, because about 90% of our serotonin and dopamine are made in the gut by processes associated with the bugs that live there, microbiome. And um, so that's one of the first things I talk to people about. And the second thing is gut hyperpermeability. So the foods that we eat and the health of the organisms that live there directly affect how well our gut prevents things from getting in that shouldn't be there. And so that we used to call that leaky gut, but now we call it gut hyperpermeability. And all that means is the nice barrier that is made up of the cells that line the gut and also these little proteins called zonulin proteins that hold all of the cells together. They're sort of like the, the grout in between the tiles. Those are very much affected by what we eat and sugar and highly refined grains. So white flours, right? So cookies, cake, pastries, treats, pizza dough, pasta, all of those things contain refined or highly processed grains. And then saturated fats, specifically animal products, and for the purpose of this conversation, specifically dairy, really disrupt the health of the gut lining and the organisms that live there. And when that happens, all of those cells and all of those proteins kind of start to fall apart and everything that shouldn't be coming in comes in. And what do I mean by come in? I mean, come inside of the body <laughs> and into the bloodstream and have exposure to the largest immune surveillance system that we have in our body. It's called the gut-associated lymphoid tissue or the GALT. And when those molecules, when those bacteria, when those food proteins and food particles start to leak in there, it really upsets the immune system and it sets off this whole cascade of inflammation. And I have learned over the last three years, if people are describing symptoms of inflammation, so what is that? Bloating, diarrhea, constipation, achy joints, rashes, acne, those are sort of the fit bloating, if I didn't say that, those are sort of the physical manifestations of inflammation. If people are describing those, they have inflammation in their brain, period. They're anxious, they're their mood is dysregulated, they can't sleep. And we know from the data, we know from the literature that inflammation in the brain plays a huge role in all neurodegenerative disorders, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, probably ALS, autoimmune diseases, multiple sclerosis, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. And now we know very well from the literature that it plays a role in depression, anxiety, schizophrenia. 
And so that's the first thing is talking to people about the gut. And so sugar, refined grains, saturated fats, especially dairy, really upset the gut and cause a lot of inflammation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is how does food affect our brain and specifically how does it affect our patients with substance use disorder? So that really gets into a conversation about cortisol and the hypothalamic pituitary axis. So when patients use substances, they turn off the hypothalamic pituitary axis, right? So they decrease corticotropin releasing factor, ACTH, which decreases cortisol, which is our fight or flight hormone, right? It makes us feel anxious. It makes us feel upset. It increases craving, increases withdrawal symptoms. So people use a substance and the system powers down. When the substance goes away, part of the negative affect that people experience with withdrawal is because of a heightened HPA axis response, increased cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. Well, it's the same thing with sugar, refined grains, and saturated fats. Standard American diet damps down the hypothalamic pituitary axis, gives people a momentary reprieve from feelings of anxiety, craving, withdrawal, whatever it is. And then once those foods are sort of out of the system, the system turns right back on again. And I think we saw this just in living color on a daily basis at our program where I did my fellowship work doing some wellness and recovery. You know, patients would describe eating a big sugar load. Like we would get these, they would get these cookies delivered, like mass delivery of cookies. And patients would eat two or three, you know, of these gigantic sugar-filled frosting coated cookies And they would feel good in the moment, but then they would describe what people usually talk about as like a sugar crash. Um, They would describe this low energy, difficulty with focus and concentration, dysphoric, I would almost consider it. And that really is that activation of that hypothalamic pituitary axis overproduction of insulin, um, hypoglycemia, and just feeling like garbage. And so I really talk to people about the brain and the gut and how sugar, refined grains, saturated fats in the form of animal products, oils, dairy, really affect both the hypothalamic pituitary axis and cortisol, which drives negative affective states, and the state of the gut, which really drives inflammation. And both of those pieces are critically important to our patients that we are trying to help manage early withdrawal, early recovery. Wow, there's so many nuanced uh, pieces to that. It's just fascinating. You know, the the HPA axis um, activation in the absence of both substances and kind of refined, addictive, highly palatable food makes so much sense. Because if you look, and I think I've looked at data about this, when patients enter methadone maintenance treatment, they typically gain weight. And there's been all this investigation into the into the question of does methadone itself cause weight gain? And it doesn't. I mean, it's an opioid agonist, but it, just like any other opioid, it's not associated with weight gain. But it, it's clearly hypothesized that this is the mechanism, right? That you're used to otherwise suppressing HPA and reward system with opioids. In the absence of that, there's something else you need to kind of used to, to feed your cravings. It's, it's really fascinating. I don't know if we address 
food cravings and food addiction enough when we're talking about substance use and in tr- treatment for substance use. That's a whole, again, this is a whole nother route oh, yeah. we could go down. But um, I agree with you, Amy. We see it all the time. People, well, especially in our program where we have a lot of people coming off of stimulants. And then, of course, their appetite is stimulated in the absence of stimulants. But it's amazing to see how this attraction to very high caloric, nutrient poor foods um, happens. And then when you match that with food deserts and poor health literacy, you kind of have a perfect. Absolutely. You know, there was a study. So speaking of significant, the possibility of a significant interaction between food choices and substance use, there's a a retrospective analysis of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey or the NHANES in 2007, 2008. And what they did was they surveyed 2,500 individuals aged 20 to 59. They had them report their dietary intake for two days and their substance use, their substance use within the last month. And they found an association between certain food choices and increased use of substances. So the, the key takeaways here are that people who ate had an overconsumption of calories, so greater than 100% of recommended calories per day were reported to have an increase of 27% responding that they had problem drinking or drug use. So overconsumption of calories, a decrease in micronutrient intake, specifically vitamins, were associated with an increased use of substances. And then high-density foods, so junk food and high-fat foods were associated with an increased use of use of substances. So, and I think you could look at that a couple of different ways. So, you know, people that are using substances, do they just have an increased risk of living in a food desert or poor nutrition education? And so they're just not consuming the right foods. I think that's one piece of it. But then I think the second piece of it is this whole sort of negative affect withdrawal cycle, not eating when they're using, and then when they're withdrawing and craving, substituting the highly, uh, the high caloric density, low micronutrient foods for the substances. And so I I think you're right, Paul. I think you just end up with a a horribly dysfunctional cycle of substance and food consumption, and we don't address it at all. I mean, you and I have been doing this. We have, the three of us have been doing this for a long time in one form or another, right? I mean, if you really start asking patients that are in treatment, if what they're eating, how much weight they gained, and if they received any nutrition or dietary counseling while they were in treatment, all of my patients gain weight in treatment. They're all consuming donuts, pizza, red vines, energy drinks, coffee, and cigarettes, and none of them are receiving any nutrition education, even at good high-end cash programs, right? So, I mean, it's just, it's a whole paradigm shift that I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface of. And I'd like to think that, you know, we're on the leading edge of the discussion. That's my hope anyway. Yes, you heard it here first, right? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about 
insomnia. I love what you talked about some of the complementary like medication supplements that you've used for the treatment insomnia. This is so common with multiple substances, alcohol use disorder, opiate opiate use disorders. I see this often. And there was one study, and I'm terrible, I believe it was a Canadian study, but alcohol use disorder, I mean, they patients complain of sleep disorders three to 18 months after last use. I mean, it's very prevalent and really disruptive to their recovery. So I mean, it's something we have to address and trying to get away from obviously, we don't want to use Z drugs. And so a lot of available, like, you know, mainstream medications, we're really trying to get away from. So yeah, take it away. Yeah, insomnia is a huge problem for our patients. There's some some very early evidence about circadian rhythm dysfunction that perhaps there's a genetic, well, I think we know for sure that there's a genetic component to circadian rhythm. You know, that the whole argument of like, some people are night people, some people are morning people. I mean, that all has to do with circadian rhythm and melatonin and cortisol and all that. But there is some early evidence that patients with substance use disorder may have a higher predilection for circadian rhythm disturbances. And does that somehow play a role in them turning to substances either to help them sleep or to help them wake up during the daytime if they have dysregulation? So I think that's an important concept to just sort of keep in the back of the brain. And then yes, what can we do for our patients in early recovery and ongoing recovery, because you're right, Darlene, there's very good evidence that sleep disruption can persist six months to 12 months to even 18 months after people stop using substances. And we think that's for two reasons. The first is disruption of circadian rhythm. So disruption of normal melatonin and cortisol production. So, you know, at nighttime, melatonin should be going up and cortisol should be going down. And if you do cortisol testing in people that are in early early recovery, which I do in my practice, saliva cortisol testing, you'll see a flip in that. So cortisol will actually go up (laughs) right as these poor people are trying to go to sleep. Um, And that probably has a lot to do with with their previous sort of disruption of their circadian cycle, whether that was um, whether they were born with that or probably more likely a combination of genetic and substance use. So that's the first thing is the HPA access and cortisol and melatonin. And the second piece that is really important is how substances affect our our ability to get into slow wave and REM sleep. We know that just about every substance, alcohol, methamphetamines, opioids, cannabis, Z drugs, they all decrease our ability to get into REM and slow wave sleep. And this is critically important for brain healing, for memory consolidation, for learning. And so if we're expecting people to learn new behaviors and learn new techniques for relapse prevention, and be involved in all these really critical behavioral pieces, if we can't get them into slow wave REM sleep, they're not going to consolidate or learn or create new neuro 
neural pathways. Another thing that happens in REM sleep is microglia in the brain are activated. And microglia, I sort of tell my patients, they're like the trash collectors in the brain. They collect all the garbage um, that's sort of collected during the daytime and they clean things up and they prune neurons and things like that. And they don't do that unless we're in slow rave slow wave REM sleep. So it's really important. And so what can we do to improve people's sleep? Well, hopefully help them stay off substances. That's number one. Avoid drugs that perpetuate and make this cycle worse. So all of our Z drugs. And then the third thing we can do is treat them with safe and, and benzos. benzos. And definitely benzos. benzos. Treat them with safe medications if they need them. You know, trazodone, maybe Seroquel, though that's a a discussion for another time, all of our our antipsychotics, atypical antipsychotics. But then I really try to start with complementary complementary medications or not medications, but complementary supplements. I use a lot of magnesium in my practice. Magnesium is a, is a GABA agonist. So it increases GABA and it decreases glutamate. So that's good for our patients, right? Decreases excitation, improves inhibition. And in studies of magnesium in older patients, not only does it improve all of the sleep parameters, so time it takes to go to sleep, time spent in sleep, but another thing that it does very well is it decreases cortisol production during the night and it's anti-inflammatory. So if we can help people reduce excitation, improve inhibition, decrease cortisol, and decrease inflammation, we're kind of hitting a lot of different pieces of helping people sleep and helping calm down the brain. So I use a lot of magnesium. I use magnesium glycinate. Magnesium glycinate is a is a formulation that is very well absorbed. So it actually gets to the brain and doesn't sit in the gut where it can cause a lot of diarrhea or cramping. So I use 250 to 500 milligrams of magnesium glycinate. And I usually start patients on all of my patients on this, whether they have depression, anxiety, substance use, whatever it is. And then the second thing to think about is melatonin. So melatonin is very good complementary therapy for sleep. In studies, it also improves sleep latency, so decreases the time it takes to go to sleep. And this has been shown in patients with alcohol use disorder. And another great thing that melatonin does is it reduces inflammation. So again, kind of a two-pronged approach to helping people in early recovery. There's a few important things to remember about melatonin. Melatonin should be taken at least two hours before bed. Most places that most treatment centers or or doctors that are prescribing melatonin, they're giving it to people, you know, at the nine o'clock med pass. And that's probably really not going to help people very much at the end of the day. Um, So I suggest giving melatonin at the five o'clock med pass or having people take it at dinner time. It cues the brain that it's going to be time to go to sleep. And we need a good two or three hours to do that. Second thing to remember about melatonin is start low and go slow. I start my patients at about a milligram and have them gradually increase by a milligram over the course of 
seven to 10 days. And this is because in some people, melatonin can actually be activating. And the reason it's activating is it can really precipitate very disruptive dreams or even nightmares, especially in patients with a trauma history. And with as many people as we're seeing with trauma, they're not always disclosing that to us. I've used it in a couple of patients. They come right out of the gate with five milligrams and they are so distraught. And so I've learned to just start really low and go really slow. Most patients do well with five milligrams, three to five milligrams. Some patients will need up to 10. But I find if we start low and go slow and dose it correctly, use it with some magnesium, use it with some pharmaceuticals if we need to, I have really good luck getting people to sleep. It's been really fun to see, actually. I think this is so interesting. I think people overdose melatonin all the time. Like we've, I've done some reading on this alongside your teaching, Amy, because I learned a lot from you. But And that's why in my program, we have standing orders that cap at five milligrams of melatonin, because people come in with this mentality that more is better. Uh, more of everything is better, right? Including melatonin. And they all want 10 milligrams yes. of melatonin. And right. And then if they take it with 100 or 150 milligrams of trazodone, and you're right, they're having nightmares or very activated dreams. So that's really good to know. And that's a really great tip just to start low and go slow. And I have a question for you. Is it important to have sublingual formulations of melatonin or does it not matter? Because I've heard it both ways that melatonin is better absorbed sublingually without first pass metabolism or can we just swallow I have I have done a lot of reading about this and it's a question and a topic that always comes up in my you know, functional medicine and integrative lectures and webinars and things like that. In my hormone training too, this always comes up. And it seems to be that most of the instructors that I've had, just like, just use a tablet. Like the evidence for sublingual is not so much better that we need to be having patients pay that little bit of extra money for the sublingual formulation or making sure that they hold it on their tongue for long enough to actually get the effect. Um, so I just use, I use oral melatonin. Have I used sublingual in my practice to be able to give you sort of an anecdotal or clinical thought on that. I honestly haven't. I just, I've, all of my teaching has been to use oral. So that's just what I use. That's good. I, easier. Simple, simple is, is better. better. <laughs> and I really like, and you can use it safely in kids and adolescents too. So that's rather than prescribing pharmaceuticals for that age group, melatonin is a great go-to as well as all of the sleep hygiene things we do for our kids. and adolescents. Absolutely. And I think Darlene, you can speak to this because you see a lot more kids, I think, than Amy and I do. And you see quite a few teenagers as well. Do you use melatonin for your kids? I will. But I really love that you brought that up, Amy. I do kind of watch, like you said, that trauma, being really careful because for some, it really can be that activating and certainly cause some nightmares in some production. But the second thing I would say um, about that, Darlene, is that patients with trauma, with depression, with substance use disorder, they 
almost uniformly have early morning wakening. And that means somewhere between 2 and 4 a.m. And this has been well documented in studies. You do salivary cortisol testing. In these patients, almost uniformly, you will see abnormally elevated first morning cortisol, despite what the rest of their cortisol testing looks like. And cortisol testing could be a whole nother podcast, a whole nother discussion. But so if people are waking up between two and four, really getting to the heart of cortisol disruption and HPA access dysregulation is key. And that involves nutrition because what we eat especially late at night, directly affects our blood sugar and our insulin and our HPA axis. So nutrition, movement. So movement helps to regulate our HPA axis um, and our normal cortisol production. And there's actually evidence that cortisol um, exercise, 30 minutes of exercise can help to normalize cortisol cortisol production and function, and then good sleep hygiene and avoiding the use of of risky substances, of course, all of those things and stress management, meditation, mindfulness, acupuncture is a huge regulator, huge treatment modality for dysregulated cortisol and HPA axis dysfunction. So really looking at those wellness and lifestyle pieces to help cortisol normalize so that people are not experience early morning awakening. And I mean, I'd add, of course, addressing trauma. Yes. (laughs) Which is kind of underlying, but I mean, that's a whole nother, that should be going along with all of this is realizing that we have to have trauma informed care and a trauma informed approach to treating patients as it's the most likely driver of a lot of people's substance Absolutely. Use. So that brings us to, to movement. You t- we talked about sleep. We talked about um, nutrition. And you just brought up exercise and movement as a regulator of cortisol. So just briefly, like what, I mean, there's lots of great evidence on this. This is one of my favorite topics. So we could go on and on about this. But exercise, how do you guide our patients about movement and exercise in relation to their recovery? Yeah, I think it's, it's all tricky, right? But, um, you know, I've really gotten away from the word exercise (laughs) because it can be so triggering for people. I really have moved to movement, (laughs) moved to movement. Um, how I just try to really access how much people are moving and, Oh my gosh, the lack of movement is overwhelming. (laughs) Nobody's moving. They're just sitting around eating highly packaged processed foods. That's the crux of the problem, right? So I really just try to meet people where they are on the whole movement situation. And if they're not moving at all, which I think it really depends on the patient population you're treating, but if they're not moving at all, I try to talk to them about just setting one small movement goal between the time I'm seeing them and our next visit, whether that's in a week, if I'm prescribing newly prescribing them buprenorphine, or if it's in two weeks or a month, what is one movement goal that you could actually be successful doing? Is it going for a walk for 10 minutes when you get home from work? Is it downloading one, you know, 
five or 10 minute sun salutation or Qigong routine that is easily accessible to you that you can do every day for a week or three days in the week. I really try to just start with like the most minimal thing because if you come out of the gate with like a, well, the data says that you should be moving, doing 30 minutes of moderate intensity cardiovascular exercise per week. I mean, no, no one's going to do that, especially someone in really early recovery. That is just totally overwhelming. I really just try to figure out how much people are moving figure out how much they might be capable of moving (laughs) based on, you know, how well or sick they are, where they live, what they have access to, and then start with a very small, smart goal. You know, smart goals. I cannot never remember the acronym, but we all know smart goals. I really try to do that. And then I used to have someone in my office who would follow up with people. And in my new practice, I will definitely have a health coach on my team. I think movement is movement and nutrition are two things that are really amenable to daily outreach from someone like a health coach or from me. I mean, I've, I end up doing a lot of sort of coaching and following up with people. So that's how I approach movement. If I have someone that has access to, to more sort of it has more utilization of an exercise facility or is a little further along the trajectory, maybe I'll give them a, a bigger goal. But for the most part, I really start with the minimum and then work my way up because it makes people feel empowered to come back and say, I totally walked for 10 minutes every single day this week. Like, it's so empowering for people, you know, and and so they'll get really excited about that if they're able to do it as opposed to giving them some big goal that just is not reasonable. Absolutely. And I, I think there's, well, there's a lot of self-confidence to be reclaimed through movement in our population. Substance use steals you away from who you were. And most of us, including our patients, we identify with movement or sports as from our child. You know, we can all think back to what we did as a, was it swimming or riding a bicycle or playing soccer? And I see the light come into my patient's eyes when I try and capture what that was for them as a child and use motivational interviewing to, to try and see what they want to do that would connect them to that joy that they experienced as a kid. What is it that you love to do? What brings back that positive um, recall? And I found that to be quite effective. And it's amazing who you come across. You come across people who pro athletes, people who've actually been quite you know, successful in terms of athleticism, but also people who are just like, I used to love doing this. I love to dance. I was great at soccer. I love to ride my bike and I never do it anymore. And empowering them to just move towards that again. And when people do it, it's really quite incredible. And the other thing I wanted to say about that is encouraging your patients to get involved in sober group that move and exercise together or move. I'm trying not to use the word exercise now, I mean, <laughs> self-conscious, but sober softball, mm-hmm. sober softball, sober frisbee. There's sober groups that play and, and work out together. That can be an amazing source of, of connection and social sober support for each other outside of like formal treatment. So, you know, in Salt Lake city, there's some incredible sober gyms, 
And it's just really a lot of people's cup of tea. It's, it's where they get um, a lot of connectivity and, and also they get the benefit of movement as well. And then Sober Softball League, it's actually quite intense. Yeah, um, it's a big deal. In terms of the level of competition, <laughs> yeah. it really is. So that's an idea as well. Yeah. Have you back, Amy, and have a whole conversation on complimentary complimentary offerings for people with substance use disorder because we haven't even talked about mind body we haven't talked about acupuncture we haven't talked about supplements that can be helpful for patients like n-acetylcysteine kudzu root some of the other things that are out there used for patients especially patients who are interested in it we haven't talked about b vitamins all these things that actually have quite good data in terms of supporting omega-3 yes there's so many vitamin d so vitamin d Yeah, vitamin D. So I think we're going to just have to have you back and do part two of the series, which is typically what happens in this podcast. We have such amazing guests that we just have more to talk about than we can possibly address in an hour. What do you think, Darlene? Yes, absolutely. In conclusion from today, though, we we talked about, well, you talked about some really fascinating things, including intergenerational kind of inherited lifestyle choices that influence substance use, mental health illnesses, and the development of chronic lifestyle-related diseases. We talked about the HPA axis. Really, that was really interesting to me. I think that's going to be interesting to a lot of our learners and how the gut and brain connection are kind of the two main themes when it comes to nutrition and how sugar processed foods saturated fats derail that gut healthy gut barrier and promote inflammation in the brain which may derail and promote activation of of cortisol and these kind of stress and negative affect hypercafetia Katifia type hormones. And then you talked about sleep, tonin, magnesium, sleep hygiene. And then we talked a little bit about movement. Is there anything else, anything else takeaway that we need to, that you want to really drive home or that you wanted to say, otherwise we'll, we'll call it a night. I think the reason I'm so happy that you guys invited me to be on this podcast is because I, I just really do think that we have to have a paradigm shift in how we're talking to people about their recovery. And, you know, these aren't just, and forgive me for saying it this way, because I know people hate this, but like, these aren't just people who use drugs. I mean, these are human beings who have to procure food and nourish themselves and move themselves and sleep and manage their stress and create connected relationships with other people. And they have, they either never knew how to do any of those things, or they did know at one point and secondary to their illness, they have completely lost all capability and are no longer empowered to do those things for themselves. And so, you know, it's important that we prescribe medications to assist people with their recovery. It's important that we evaluate and get people into the appropriate level of care and get them the appropriate um, behavioral health you know, sort of clinical treatments. But if we continue to leave this out of the discussion and feed our patients poorly in treatment, I really just don't think that we're going to get anywhere. And, you know, I'll just leave it with my favorite quote by David Wiss, who is a a registered dietitian in California. He's also a man in long-term recovery. And when I read this quote two and a half years ago, I knew that this is how treatment of substance use disorder was going to play out for me. And his quote is, old wisdom from the recovery community would suggest that a liberalized approach to sweets, 
nicotine, and caffeine is favorable to help the individual get past the immediate crisis. New wisdoms suggest that this behavior is a form of cross-addiction that should be addressed early in recovery. And that just pretty much summarizes, this is just sort of the driving force behind my passion for path that I accidentally have found myself on. Anyway, thanks for having me. So so mic drop. I mean, good job, Amy. That that just summed it up. That was incredible. That's an incredible quote. So thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks for having me, ladies. Thank you. That was fantastic. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.